Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Biden administration asked Congress for $842 billion for defense, more than last year, but less than expected, and what many say is needed to continue deterring China. Details emerge on Monday as Congress works to repeal the authorization of military force, but debt talks remain stalled. Kiev calls for more help faster as Russia's offensive against the country grinds on, while two Ukrainian pilots undergo evaluation in F-16 simulators in the United States to gauge their proficiency and what could be a precursor for a fighter deal. Germany says reports a pro-Ukrainian group blew up the Nord Stream pipelines may be Russian disinformation. The UD reveals Moscow is supplying Beijing with highly enriched uranium, and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tries to convince Turkey for the latest time to back Sweden's NATO membership. President Biden and Australian Prime Minister Antony Albanese will on Monday meet in San Diego and disclose that Australia will be first equipped with U.S.-made Virginia-class attack submarines as a bridge to a new version of Britain's astute-class attack sub that will eventually be made in Oz. After securing a third term as president, Xi Jinping blamed America for China's problems and accused it of encirclement this as Chinese jets continued to violate Taiwan's airspace. And speaking of China, Beijing has brokered an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Unfortunately, Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security cannot join us this week, uh, but that we hope he will be able to join us next week. Good morning, everybody. Thanks so very much for joining us. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval warfare coverage and our coverage at the Air Force Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium. This year in Denver was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. Uh, Guys, uh, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. And uh, just for the audience who's waiting for the budget discussion, we're going to save that uh, for the bottom. So we're going to do the week, uh, the world in in review, and we're going to start with Michael on the Hill. Uh, Michael, give us an update on where we are on debt ceiling talks, as well as the authorization uh, on the use of military force. And if you want to get into January 6th as well, go ahead. Okay, thank you. So we're not in a very good place when it comes to the debt ceiling. Uh, President Biden uh, just said yesterday, you know, I'm ready to meet with the speaker at any time uh, tomorrow, even if he has his budget. You know, lay it down, tell me what you want to do, and I'll show you what I want to do. And even last night, he sent out a tweet, you know, almost kind of you know, taunting the Republicans, where the president said, I've now laid down my budget. The Republicans in Congress uh, need to do the same. So, you know, we're starting to hear more from some of the, you know, the factions in the House Republican uh, conference. So first, the Republican Study Committee, which is really the largest block in the House, has about 176 members. They put out a memo with some of their ideas on how to deal with this. And some are old, you know, rehashed ideas that really aren't going to go anywhere. Things like, um, you know, prioritizing, uh, you know, the payment of defense in case of uh, payments in case of default. Um, They've suggested, you know, a cap on discretionary spending. 
Uh, they want to rescind unused funds from a lot of the Democratic past bills like the American Rescue Plan, uh, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the Inflation Reduction Act. And then they came up with an idea that the debt ceiling um, should be tied to a percentage of the overall economy uh, or set some kind of uh, debt to GDP uh, ratio. Now, what I find um, a little more alarming is now the House Freedom Caucus has come out with some of their demands. And they have demanded at least $3 trillion in spending cuts over the next decade in exchange for supporting uh, the debt ceiling. Uh, and they're demanding you know, things like an end to Biden's student loan forgiveness program. They want to rescind COVID unspent funds. They want to rescind uh, the $80 billion expansion of the IRS, uh, you know, and, uh, and even some other things that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. But what I find most alarming is the chairman of the Freedom Caucus said, I think it was yesterday, America will not default on our debts unless President Biden chooses to do so. And that to me is extremely alarming because that what they're saying is if you don't do what we want to do, then we're going to end up defaulting. And that, you know, is, uh, you know, really takes this game of chicken to, to a different level. So we still have ways to go, uh, but this uh, I think is going to be hot now because of the president's budgets come out, which we'll talk about later. Uh, I also think that when it comes to January 6th, the Republicans continue to miscalculate. Uh, they keep, you know, I don't think this was a winner for them politically, but uh, their actions continue to keep it on, on the front pages and, uh, you know, the blanketing coverage and all the uh, cable news networks. Uh, Tucker Carlson took the footage that was given to him by McCarthy, uh, aired a show that really twisted the details of the attack. It made it look like uh, it was just a bunch of tourists uh, going through the Capitol. Uh, the Capitol Police Chief uh, sent out a memo to his department earlier this week denouncing Tucker Carlson's show, saying it was filled with offensive and misleading conclusions. And a lot of Republican senators chimed in as well. I mean, McConnell backed up uh, the Capitol Hill Police Chief, saying it was a mistake uh, to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with our chief law enforcement official here in the Capitol. And several members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, including Senator Kramer and Senator Rounds, came up very strongly uh, saying that what Tucker Carlson was portraying uh, was a lie. But you know, to make matters worse, the House Administration Subcommittee on Oversight now has launched a new investigation into the work of the January 6th committee. And Marjorie Taylor Greene has announced that she's going to lead a group of colleagues to visit January 6th defendants in the D.C. jail. So I, I just don't think that's a real winning formula. Um, uh, look, I mean, you know, it's interesting that all of this also coincides with all uh, the Dominion voting issue uh, and the like. But the thing is, it depends on what news ecosystem you live in you just don't get any coverage of that, right? I mean, if you're, if you're immersed in, in that um, information environment, uh, there's a lot of stuff that you're not going to hear about uh, dissenting voices, unfortunately, um, which, is, which is why this is also problematic, right, ultimately. Yeah, it, 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 you're exactly right. I mean, the Fox viewing audience does, has no idea that Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram uh, were giving them false information knowingly. And, and, right. and on top of that, that, that Tucker Carlson says he hates President Trump, uh, most of that viewing audience will never know the truth. Um, uh, un unfortunately, I would love to delve into this with uh, a little greater detail, but unfortunately, we have a lot of budget stuff uh, that I want to try to get to. But uh, very quickly, Dove, uh, you're, um, um, I'm eager to get your sense, right? I mean, a very, very big uh, week uh, with a lot of actually very, very interesting uh, news, not to use very, very as many as many times, but it, it is a very interesting week. Uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky is calling, obviously, for more help more quickly. There are two Ukrainian pilots. Uh, that are in the United States getting evaluated in F-16 uh, simulators. Many see that as a precursor, uh, even as uh, the administration and, and again in Denver uh, at the uh, Aerospace Warfare Symposium earlier this week, senior leaders kept saying, we're going to help Ukraine uh, rebuild its air force after the conflict is, is over. Um, we have 
the DOD uh, uh, saying that Russia is shipping uh, um, uh, highly enriched uranium uh, to China, which is an interesting development and, and raises the question of a quick pro quo. And then on top of this, we have Jens Stoltenberg still trying to convince Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, to back uh, Sweden's uh, membership, NATO membership. Kind of give us, walk, walk us all around the waterfront uh, on this. Well, on the F-16s, uh, obviously, until the president says, I'm ready to do it, uh, every official below the president is going to say, we're not ready to do it. Uh, I think that uh, there are other things, by the way, that the Ukrainians need just as much, uh, and that is primarily uh, artillery tubes and artillery shells. And let's be honest, we're not... uh, using the Defense Production Act yet in any way to support this, to force industry to work three shifts a day, seven days a week. We're not doing that. And that is what the Ukrainians desperately need as much as, if not more than, F-16s. And so once again, you're seeing this pattern of slow rolling out stuff, but not doing it in any kind of uh rapid way at a time when not only are the Chinese seemingly supporting the Russians more, e- more and more each day, but look at how many f- uh, hypersonic missiles the Russians fired. Now, those are terror systems. They're like V2s in World War II, right. but nevertheless, the Russians are stepping it up. They don't care how many people they get killed. The word coming out of Moscow to anybody you speak to who's been speaking to Moscow is Putin is still in a pretty strong position. Uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, is the one who's belly aching, not Putin. So again, the administration's being much too coy at a time when it just can't afford to be. Uh, NATO, uh, the Hungarians, uh, there was a Hungarian delegation going around from their parliament saying, look, uh, we're going to approve this thing on March 20th. Uh, Let's see what happens, because there have been multiple postponements before, but they never were as explicit about letting the Swedes and the Finns in as they are uh, now. The Finnish president uh, is in Washington. Um, He met yesterday briefly with President Biden. He met with Mike McCall. He met with all sorts of people. Um, And, you know, support for Finland coming in and for Sweden is is very, very high. Uh, And so uh, on that score, um, when you look at what Stoltenberg's trying to do, He's got a heck of a lot of back- backing here in Washington. Uh, and, and I think this is a point worth uh, Averill Haynes, you know, said, well, Putin still thinks he's going to win. And again, as we've said from the very beginning of this, it's, it's about the time, 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 time. Putin thinks time is on his side. Uh, and so the more, um, you know, Western consumer appliances and, and electronics he gets from the Chinese, uh, he's been working, uh, you know, his factories are working 24-7 to produce these weapons and they're getting sent to the front and are being shot. And as you said, they're, they're terror weapons. What, what uh, dove does the Russian shipment of highly enriched uranium to the Chinese uh, mean? Because the Chinese actually have a remarkably sophisticated nuclear enterprise, uh, right? So they don't necessarily need it. Is this something that you think is a trigger of a, of a quid pro quo? And Patrick, I'm going to bring you in on this uh, in just a moment. Um, to, to sort of give us your your sense uh, on what to make of this? Well, it's partly, I think, uh, an effort to get the Chinese to help them even more than they are. Uh, and it's partly a thank you for the help they've already received. Putin's really got nowhere to go. Uh, his 
Acme is doing reasonably well, actually more than reasonably well, uh, because he's uh, still doing business with China, with India, with South Africa, uh, frankly, with the BRICS. Uh, and uh, that uh, has certainly reinforced his determination to keep going. He really thinks he's going to wait the, the West out. And uh, anytime there's a sign of any sort of uh, slackening of support, that just reinforces him. But the Chinese relationship, and I'm sure Patrick can expand on this to a far greater extent, is critical for him. And uh, he will do what China asks him to do. Uh, obviously, he's shipping gas and oil to them. They're huge importers of both. Uh, but beyond that, if there's anything else they need for their energy and for an economy that they're having a lot of trouble with, um, he will do to whatever he can to help their economy because he wants them to do whatever they can to help his war. Uh, and I should point out, right, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just the BRICS. It's Africa, Latin America, Gulf countries are still doing business uh, with, uh, including countries in Asia, uh, continue to do business uh, with uh, Russia. Uh, and it's a 0.3%, right? I mean, this year it's projected to be, you know, better than even the British and other economies, even if economists say that in the next year, the situation will look um, a very different uh, or may look different uh, from uh, for one Russia. Thing, one thing I would say about economists is that they don't exactly have the greatest track record in these regards. Uh, that's right. The dismal the dismal science can be dismal in some of its uh, predictions. Patrick, I'm just going to ask you to hold on one second. Um, is congressional support at all fraying, Michael, up on the hill uh, for Ukraine or is it uh, still strong? I think overall it's still strong, but uh, I'm definitely am concerned. I, I, but I, I think, look, as I mentioned last week, uh, I think that Zelensky is getting in his government are getting some very bad advice on how to handle uh, the Republicans in Congress. And he seemed to double down on that bad advice earlier this week where he invited Speaker McCarthy uh, to come visit uh, Ukraine. He said, you know, he has to come to see how we work, what's happening here, what caused, you know, what war caused us what people are fighting for, uh, and then he can make his assumptions. Well, I mean, you're putting the speaker in, in a corner and he gets his back up against the wall and he shot down, you know, that invitation. And then, you know, came back saying, you know, I don't need to go there uh, to see that I don't need to send them a blank check. Now, you know, again, that, that blank check comment was from last year. And of course, who wants it? Nobody wants a blank check. I mean, McCarthy was very careful uh, of what he's saying. He's got to appease his far right. But at the same time, he's let his support, the supporters of Ukraine on the Hill know that he uh, still supports Ukraine funding. And as I've said before, too, there's a difference between the military aid and the non-military aid. Right. And uh, I think that they've got to you know, treat him uh, more respectfully and more with kid gloves here and understand the political dynamic they're dealing with or things could turn against them. Um, and, and they're going to need a package this year. I mean, the, the, the budget, which we'll talk about later, has only $6 billion in funding for Ukraine. So we're going to need a supplemental package, and they've got to figure out how to get the votes for it and, and what, to, what package to, uh, to attach it to. Uh, in, uh, in, in, indeed. But, I mean, ultimately, it's also about leadership, right? And he could be leading his caucus in another direction. I understand the challenges associated with it, but I think the party really needs, you know, this might be, a, you know, this is kind of another one of those wake-up calls where these inconsistencies uh, can't really coexist at some point. Uh, and and you've got to be able to deal uh, to, to to figure out some way to deal with it as a party. Let's just jump in on this the six billion for Ukraine. Remember, this is for fiscal year twenty four, which means not a penny of that will be seen by the Ukrainians till October first at the earliest, assuming there's no CR or anything like that. 
What the administration should have done as well was say how much they're going to ask for in the next supplemental. And they, right. they should attach that to the budget. They didn't attach it to the budget. And so that doesn't exactly stiffen the spines of those who want to support Ukraine now. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's like 16, you know? Yeah, when it, you know, it's like Mr. Wimpy used to say on the Popeye cartoons, I'll pay you on Tuesday for a hamburger today. That's what's going on here. And it's not good. Um, I, uh, I was I was thinking about the exact same example, uh, Dove, uh, well, well called and, and really a nice endorsement for Popeye, uh, a great a great cartoon. Um, Patrick, you've been uh, very patient, uh, obviously, just an enormous amount of news uh, from the region. Obviously, the biggest one uh, is uh, uh, the AUKUS deal. We'll get to that uh, in just a moment. But I want to get your sense on what this nuclear transfer uh, means. Again, China looking very closely um, and and really aligned with Putin, and indeed maybe increasingly aligned with Putin over a long range uh, strategy, which I think is completely unsurprising. Um, walk us through what the nuclear transfer means, and whether it's it's more than just symbolic, and what is it we can expect next now that it's happened. Well, there's plenty of symbolism, but it is much more than that. With uh, tons of Russian nuclear fuel to fuel uh, the fast breeder reactor that China has a mere 125 miles away from Taiwan's northern shore, China will be able to reach that goal of quadrupling their nuclear arsenal, to have this nuclear breakout that will give them the parity that they're seeking vis-a-vis uh, -vis U.S. nuclear forces. That's what this means. Um, and it's both symbolically important because here you have uh, a long-term close relationship between Russia and China with one more serious strategic thread uh, tightening that pact. Um, and who knows what else is there in terms of submarine technology that Dove has talked about in the past or other types of intelligence sharing. Um, and um, you have China uh, making sure that they're going to be able to build up that nuclear force which will hold, uh, they think, uh, U.S. forces and allied forces at bay while they perhaps seek the forcible reunification of Taiwan is one scenario that they will uh, certainly want to be able to enact with their PLA modernization. Let me uh, take you to all of the other things that happened. Obviously, uh, China's uh, uh, legislature uh, met. Um, it was a real nail-biting uh, outcome uh, that uh, Xi Jinping <laughs> got uh, the presidency for another third term. Um, you know, and in it, he made a very, very aggressive uh, speech, accusing the United States of being the cause of China's problems, which is patently false, accusing it, accusing uh, Washington of encircling uh, China, uh, which is also false. We're responding uh, to China's bad behavior and everybody else is joining us to stand up to their bad behavior, right? Um, there are countries that are beginning to side with us that ordinarily wouldn't side with us. The relationship between us uh, and you know, Manila and Washington has not been warm and it warmed and warmed rather dramatically uh, and quickly, even though people were looking at, at the new Marcos uh, government and saying, ooh, they're going to be closer to China. Watch, Fago, they're going to sell everything out to China. And it turns out they're equally concerned about China's uh, bad behavior. Uh, you know, and all the while, China is proving again that it is the antagonist, for example, in penetrating uh, in, in deeper and consistent ways Taiwanese airspace. How, do, how should we be regard, you know, and, and on top of all of that, right? I mean, the 5% the economic growth figure that was weaker than many people expected for the, for the year. Give us sort of an encapsulation on what it is we've seen uh, this week. 
Well, you're right. Xi Jinping formally announced the third term of head of the uh, Communist Party of China, as well as being head of state and head of the military and announcing a 7% increase in PLA spending when their economy only grew by 3% last year and at best 5% this year, they're predicting. Um, So they're very clear about their ambitions. Um, They like to claim the United States is uh, applying a double standard. uh, And while there are double standards all around the world, um, the Chinese never admit to their own double standards. So here they are instigating tension across the Taiwan Strait in their region, bringing U.S. allies and partners closer together than ever. Um, but they say we are leading them uh, to to militarize when, in fact, it's been the other way around for a number of years. Um, I think the focus on high technology driving their economy and their military search for primacy uh, came out of Xi Jinping's speech. The words he used, though, in name checking the United States were noted by everybody uh, that uh, the containment, encirclement, suppression of China. Uh, was being instigated by the U.S. Uh, with its allies and partners. And then you had the new foreign minister, uh, Chang Gang, uh, come out and basically uh, second that by talking about you better change your attitude, America, or you're going to be on a collision course over, say, Taiwan. Um, and this is uh, now there are warnings uh, about uh, the Biden administration better restrain Speaker McCarthy from meeting with Tsai Ing-wen when she's in the United States uh, for an upcoming trip. And, um, you know, that's not going to happen, just as uh, the Biden administration did not prevent Speaker Pelosi from going to Taiwan. They're hardly going to prevent Speaker McCarthy from meeting in California uh, with, with Tsai Ing-wen. Um, but they will, the Chinese will use this as further uh, sort of rationalization for their harassment, their buildup. Ironically, uh, Vago, not to be missed, is actually Beijing is quietly putting out feelers to both the opposition Kuomintang Party, the KMT, as well as the DPP ruling party in Taiwan ahead of the January 2024 elections. And that's because they're hedging their bets and they want to have as much influence as possible. I think it's utterly uh, fascinating. Um, We're going to be obviously talking more about uh, this AUKUS issue. And I just want to say our producer, uh, Chris Cervello, uh, who's a retired Navy uh, commander and public affairs officer, uh, is going to be joining us uh, in just a moment for this portion of the discussion beyond, uh, as well as uh, on Navy side, given that there is some uh, interesting Navy news. Uh, the president of the United States is going to meet with the Australian prime minister in San Diego on Monday, and they're going to announce the big AUKUS deal, the uh, Australia-UK-US uh, uh, um, agreement uh, from a year and a half ago um, to uh, field nuclear attack submarines for uh, Australia, but also draw the three these three important nations more closely together. It's already yielded a variety of sub-agreements in terms of the alliance and the partnership. Obviously, these are three of the five eyes nations. The other two are Canada and New Zealand. Patrick, is is this the right deal and the right way to execute this? Because, you know, uh, we're looking at Virginia-class attack submarines uh, going into uh, Australian service somewhat more quickly as we wait for uh, the Brits to redesign an astute uh, a version of the astute, several of which would be built in the UK, and then also and and simultaneously building up the industrial capacity uh, in Australia. You know, is this the right deal in the right way to yield the right outcome at a scale of relevance? Because these submarines are not really going to be in service for some time yet, 
And then there's a question whether the United States has the industrial capacity to build these subs to get them into Australian hands anyway. I mean, the submarine force would rather those submarines be wearing the, the flag of the United States than Australia. Well, it's the right deal if they can deliver on it over time. And that's a big, uh, a big ask. Um, certainly in the fall of 2021, when the Australians were ripping up the deal with the French to build uh, conventional submarines, replace the aging Collins class submarines that Australia now operates, uh, nobody would have said this is the obvious uh, solution. Um, and yet, uh, it's a compelling solution that I think we're going to hear a lot of details on uh, on Monday on just the submarine deal. I think the issues about the high technology cooperation, which are also important in this trilateral US-UK-Australian uh, partnership, are going to be deferred. And we're going to hear about that in, in coming weeks and months. Um, but on the submarine deal, um, I, you're talking about a phased uh, implementation. So uh, the provision of uh, allied submarines um, uh, operating out of uh, HMS Sterling, uh, Western Australia, uh, as early as 2027, um, and then uh, filling the gap uh, for the eventual delivery of a, of a U.S., U, I mean, I'm sorry, for a U.K., Australian-built, uh, uh, conventionally, um, armed but nuclear-powered submarine to be delivered in the 2040s and beyond, um, this, the stopgap would be to sell Australia Virginia-class submarines, three initially with the option to buy two more uh, to be delivered as available uh, you know, sometime uh, in the 2030s, which prevents that gap of when the aging uh, Collins-class have to be retired um, uh, we'll have more deterrent power as an al as an alliance in the theater. Um, we'll have a greater and stronger trilateral industrial base. And I think those are the two big gains out of this AUKUS deal right now with just the Pillar 1 submarine. Um, but we have to deliver on it. And there, are, I've got a whole series of questions about, you know, the challenges that we're going to face in Australia and the UK and the US uh, and in the region on, on delivering. Chris, I want to uh, bring you uh, into the discussion. Uh, there, you know, several times a week we end up discussing uh, this uh, issue uh, on how best to address this need. From from your standpoint, being familiar uh, with the Navy, it's thinking and having followed this. Obviously, you guys on the Cavus Ships podcast, and I just want to use this as a quick uh, word uh, to remind the audience to tune into our other programs, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, uh, and sponsored uh, by HII as well as GE Marine a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with uh, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and obviously our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace with JJ Gerkler uh, and me. Chris, sort of give us give us your sense uh, on this deal. And, and Patrick, I'm going to come back to you for a moment, and then we're going to move to the budget part of the conversation. Go ahead. I really don't have um, a, a ton of um, difference from what uh, Patrick outlined. The, the only thing I would say is I, I am still skeptical that parts two and three of the deal will actually come to fruition. The likelihood of uh, operating allied submarines out of Western Australia by 27, I'd say probably pretty good. I mean, we, you know, there's lots of reasons to do that, even independent of AUKUS. That's something that had been talked about uh, for a while. So I think that happens. Um, whether we sell uh, three to five Virginia class submarines to the Australians 
in the 30s. I, I think there's still a ton of work that has to be done both here at home uh, in Australia. The larger security environment will will get a vote in that. Uh, and, and then, you, you know, do do we actually build Collins class or excuse me, do we actually build a joint, um, you, you know, U.S. technology, uh, U.K., Australian built submarine that that comes to, you know, fruition in the mid 30s? I'm skeptical on that. So, you know, sort of one thing at a time, the decision to abandon the French submarines, the more we learn about how AUKUS is coming about. You have to you have to shake your head a little bit. I mean that that was the I guess the the clearest way to get capability in the hands of the Australians to help them build. I'm still very skeptical that that was the right decision. Uh, well, right. I mean, it was um, unfortunately right a confluence of a lot of things. Scott Morrison uh, wanting to you know shake the etch a sketch a little bit. Boris Johnson wanting to stick it to the French and a White House that was very eager. Uh, to change the narrative uh, on a uh, bad Afghanistan withdrawal. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody was talking about, hey, this administration can walk and chew gum. I love the idea that there are nuclear powered attack submarines that will be based out of Australia. I'm all for this. But the complexity of the challenge is is really what's uh, incredibly daunting. And I want to just sort of state the United States had the had the Royal Navy not been the Royal Navy, there was no way that we were going to transfer nuclear technology and the entire back end of Britain's first nuclear attack submarine, HMS Dreadnought, to the UK if it was not a first order engineer, you know, with the kind of experience and the technical capacity to be able to handle it. And, and the Brits did, and they've never had a nuclear accident, and neither have we. Uh, we've lost two subs, but they've never had a nuclear accident, and, and we're dealing with highly enriched uh, uranium. Let me just add one other thing. My biggest concern of all this is, is that by the time those submarines show up, that the the conflict is already you know done that that they won't have the effect of deterring conflict with the Chinese that that were in the thick of it by by then and all this was for nothing. Uh, Patrick, I mean your sense on that and has anybody given you or do we do any of us and 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 Dove and Michael, you're welcome to join in, give us any sense for how much this is going to cost because there is a sense on the U.S. in the U.S. submarine community that the Australians will help underwrite the cost of facilitating the United States, you know, so that we get, you know, Chris, I'm going to use one of your words, right? Free chicken. Uh, that at the end of the day, the Australians pay the cost for the facilitization. We end up building more boats. We build so many more boats that we can provide them. We're, we're talking now, right? We're supposed to be at two attack boats a year. We're still not there. The, uh, the ballistic missile sub is the equivalent of three attack boats. And, you know, a couple of years of this, we want to get to six attack boats, right? Equivalents, three attack subs, as well as now we're talking about adding Australian subs on top of that, which means like what some year, you know what I mean? So maybe we do get to a more steady state three a year where the U.S. Navy pulls off of them. And, you know, anyway, I mean, it, it, it you know, Patrick, any sense on either of those lines? Well, uh, yes, indeed. Um, and so, you know, the money is a is a critical chokehold on on implementation, both for the second and third phase of this. Uh, so if we don't get enough resources into our shipyards at at you know for EB in, in Connecticut or Newport News in Virginia, um, and already of course at the end of last year, the US budget was putting money into these shipyards to try to hire personnel and to try to uh, upgrade um, public shipyards in order to be able to have more capacity. That's not sufficient yet. But yes, maybe with more Australian money, uh, this can be part of it. And indeed, 
the Australians are looking at this price tag right now in their own, uh, in US dollars, $112 billion is a number that's floating out there in the in Australian press today. Uh, and that number is creeping up and will probably keep going up. And that number, uh, you know, is going to be partly going to help the US uh, to have the extra capacity to provide uh, these Virginia class submarines. Um, and then the political hurdle of uh, keeping through the spending, you know, decade after decade, because we're really talking about the 2040s, even the 2050s on the delivery of this, uh, of the, of the AUKUS SSN. Um, and that's where you're going to have political will questioned over time in Australia. Is this enough? Do we have enough sovereignty? Do we have enough capability? Have we missed the fight? Um, all of those are legitimate issues that we just cannot answer right now. But I think the administration would say, and I think we'll hear at Point Loma with the president and Prime Minister Albanese, you know, a very clear political will to say this provides the undersea, you know, capability we need today in the 2020s, in the 2030s, and the 2040s and beyond. And that's what we have to do. We have to invest in um, combat credible force, undersea, preserve that uh, allied uh, and undersea uh, advantage that we have. Uh, well into this century. And I think, you know, there's a strong case to be made that these are the right kinds of investments if they can carry them through. Dove, let me uh, bring you into this because you've been writing about this issue as well. There's a Collins upgrade question, but then there is also the fundamental speed question. Would ultimately the Australians have been better off sticking with the French submarines and being able to field a credible deterrent sooner rather than delay? And, and then we could have always forward deployed American nuclear attack submarines or British attack submarines uh, out of Sterling or Darwin or anywhere else? The answer is, if this deal works, then they're better off with this deal. But as Patrick has pointed out, and, you know, uh, the chairman and the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee wrote in December, there aren't enough people. And oh, by the way, you can throw some money at it. But even when we were throwing lots of money at the 80s, we still had problems getting people to work on these ships. So that's not going to be these uh, boats, I should say. And that's not going to be easy. So you're talking long term. You're talking costs that are likely to go up. You're talking a Navy demand for Virginia class submarines that is growing. And right now they cannot even meet. And it's not clear they can meet their own goals. And now you're talking about providing Virginia class subs to the Australians. Um, this is a huge bite. And it's not clear to me that we can pull it off. So given all of that, given the uncertainties and the budget concerns and the people concerns, uh, it probably would have been smarter for them to have the Australians to have just gone with the French. Less sophisticated submarine, less complicated reactor, by the way, um, but something they could have gotten much sooner. And uh, now they're going to have to upgrade Collins class. They've got the Dutch and the Swedes interested in doing that. Then they've got to get the Virginias. Then they've got to get the British system. And as Chris pointed out, this game could be all over way before then. Uh, and I should point out the Collins class is a derivative uh, of a Swedish design and was done by Cockums uh, in, uh, in, in the UK and it was, excuse me, in Australia. And it was a very frustrating program because the, the, the Australians wanted to build everything uh, in the country. And, and sadly, the, the boats um, have uh, certain challenges they've been living with through life because the, you know, it's a, not a criticism of Australian industry. It's very good, but submarine componentry is, is among the most complicated um, uh, stuff out there. And the Swedes had said, hey, look, on some of this stuff, for example, the main motor and other things, let's supply that 
to you from guys who really have an uninterrupted uh, tradition of, you know, an, an experience based build, building this. Okay. And uh, obviously, we're, go ahead. Had to help the Australians out with the Collins class. And the Collins class, exactly. I'd have a nuclear reactor and nuclear safety and all of that. This is going to be totally new to the Australians. We're asking a lot of them. We're asking a lot of ourselves. We're asking a lot of the Brits. A lot of uncertainties here. Uh, exactly, which is which is you know why some of us were like, look, I mean, the easiest answer would have been just the French nuclear attack submarine from the outset with low enriched uranium and a sustainable plan. Obviously, that also depended on Paris uh, wanting to export that technology, and at the time, Australia didn't want it. Anyway. Well, we'll talk more about this after the Point Loma uh, announcement and greater details. Um, uh, Michael, uh, let me go to you to start uh, the budget discussion. We have an $842 billion uh, package, uh, very low inflation assumptions. Uh, you know, Dove has very thoughtfully written in the Hill uh, that as China spends more money with the 7% increase, we're going in the opposite direction. And it, this effectively is regarded as a cut. And I should say, you know, the number that we had been hearing and we had been discussing on this program was a $30 billion plus up. Folks were then saying the number was about 850. It came in at 842. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that has left this budget. Obviously, we'll see details on Monday. Indeed, I'm going to bet, you know, today budget briefings are happening on an off the record basis, embargoed for release on Monday. Um, you know, walk us through how members are receiving this and what are sort of the interesting elements of this. Uh, and I'd like to go across, you know, Dove. You know, your sense as a former comptroller, Patrick, on, on deterrence, and then Chris, you know, your budget eye, the Navy has some controversial elements in this budget, one of which is, uh, you know, gapping the production of LPD-17s, uh, which really have been regarded as one of the most effective tools we have because of its range, low maintenance, and just incredible capabilities of that, uh, of that ship. Uh, go, go ahead, Michael, start us off. True. Well, the budget overall is not being that well received on the Hill is really considered more of a messaging document. And, you know, the non-defense discretionary spending, which, you know, the, the Republicans are looking to cut, uh, the president actually increased by over 7%, while at the same time, as you pointed out, defense spending is up uh, just over 3.2%, which doesn't keep pace with inflation. And the president's asking for things in his budget, knowing that the, 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 the Congress isn't going to go for these things, you know, things like uh, 25% uh, minimum tax on households worth more than 100 million, higher taxes for oil and gas companies. He wants to reverse the Trump corporate tax cuts and raise the corporate rate back to 28%. He wants to raise Medicare taxes on people making over $400,000 a year. And he's adding a lot of new spending. I mean, $22 billion for childcare and education programs. Uh, he wants to spend over half a billion dollars now on free college, free community college, which of course is gonna not go anywhere. He's now uh, pay family medical leave is back on the table again in this bill. So these are really things that are uh, really more messaging knowing that they're not gonna go anywhere. But you know, when it comes to defense, and as you mentioned, we'll see more of the details next week. Uh, you know, it has not been well received you know, by Republicans so far. I mean, Mike Rogers, who chairs the Armed Services Committee, uh, called the proposal absurd, uh, says that uh, a modest budget growth uh, you know, sends the wrong messages to our adversaries. Uh, Kay Granger, who chairs the Appropriations Committee in the House, says that the budget spends far too much on unnecessary programs at the expense of our national security. And Roger Wicker, who's the ranking um, senator on the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, really came out swinging uh, even before the budget came out. And he said when it did come out that the president's defense budget is woefully inadequate and disappointing. And he said that his committee will again need to step up to ensure that our military has the resources it needs to defend the nation. But 
Jack Reed, who is the chairman of the committee, came out supporting the budget. He said, with this strong budget, President Biden is prioritizing the safety and well-being of the American people. And that's key because Jack Reed and Wicker worked hand in hand last year to get that $45 billion increase. So without the Democrats' support in the Senate, I think increasing defense spending is going to be very difficult. But but I mean, they are really uh, pushing uh, on an open door, right? I mean, there's this sense that even though the number came in lower, uh, that Congress is going to be helping the Pentagon out. And it may have been a very cynical calculation. I mean, and I, God forbid there would be a cynical calculation in Washington. I just want to uh, apologize <laughs> on, uh, to the White House for saying this, but come on, it's a cynical calculation. I can ask for 842 knowing that Congress is going to give me more money and that um, unfunded list is going to go up there and is going to get funded. I, mean, I, I think the the un- I, I, cut, list- I cut LPD 17 because I know <laughs> the, the the shipbuilding guys are on fire uh, and it's going to get funded. And oh, by the way, it's a, it's an important capability the nation needs, right? I mean, it's going to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Right? I wouldn't bank on this number necessarily going up. It might, right? But yes, the unfunded list will come up. Congress will fund a lot of those things at the, on the unfunded list at the expense of other programs that the Pentagon has put in its budget request. Uh, you know, if we're going to be cutting the non-defense discretionary, which I believe they will uh, reduce, not the numbers the Republicans want to, but they will, it will be a tougher sell to increase defense spending while you're cutting the non-defense uh, d- discretionary. So I, I wouldn't put my money on it. And we still have a long way to go. Uh, Dove and uh, Patrick, uh, your guys take on this and Chris real quick uh, as well. And we do have to get to Saudi Arabia uh, and China. And I want Dove and Patrick to try to uh, handle that real quick before, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's rather uh, extraordinary, although not entirely surprising um, uh, development. But uh, go ahead. Let's let's quickly uh, take a a bite at the budget apple each. Go ahead, Dove. Uh, First of all, uh, I like Michael's phrase of uh, uh, of messaging that this was really a messaging sort of budget. Uh, The trouble is the message is a bad one when you're looking at defense. Uh, What I wrote was that if you look at where China's been, second year in a row, over 7% real growth, uh, 28 years in a row, increases, 10 years, they double their defense budget and look at where we are. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget, which, oh, by the way, really tussled with DOD this year and, and kind of won out, um, is assuming 2.4%. Is, is this reminiscent of you and Robin Cleveland? Uh, not as bad, but getting there. Um, they, they're they assuming 2.4% inflation in 2024. You know, we're over 6%. If you believe that, you know, there's a bridge I'll sell you. But you know, uh, when you're looking at a, at a budget increase uh, that is not re- in real growth at all. And uh, I'm not sure that I totally agree with Michael that there, there won't be any increase on the Hill. But, and I, but nevertheless, I think the Pentagon is assuming, as they in fact assumed last year, that there would be an increase, but they know it's not going to be as big. And so now you have a problem. And let's just to give you a couple of examples. Um, Spending on the Pacific, uh, they wanted out in pay comps north of 15 billion. The administration is bragging about 9 billion. Um, they are spending money on strategic forces, uh, but again, it's, it's not clear how far that they really are going on that. And, and the basic thing is this you've got at least uh, a half a dozen, actually more than that. I'm going to list them for you agriculture, commerce, education. Uh, HHS, labor, state, 
uh, Treasury and even EPA all get double digit increases. Fair enough if you're a Democrat, but if you're an ally or you're an enemy and you see all of those things happening and you see just 3%, which is not even real uh, on the defense side, what are you going to conclude? And what are, uh, you gonna, what are you going to conclude if you're Ukraine and you're thinking, well, you know, the United States is really going to flex its muscles when it won't even flex its muscles on its own defense? I think we've got a very serious problem here. And I think Roger Wicker is right to have his hair on fire. Um, I, I, although, uh, you know, their story is DOD has benefited from consistent spending increases, whereas the other arms, I'm, I'm not I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that their argument is all of these other arms of government were underinvested in throughout the course of the war. And it's it's time for us to put some investment into some of these other uh, corners fine. of government that have atrophied. That, but that's fine, but not at the expense of defense. I mean, if, if defense goes south, then all these other go even further south. It, it's a I, ridiculous argument, quite frankly. I, I, I think, which is ultimately, we're all living longer. We want all of these other arms of government to work. We have to spend more on national security and we have to find a way to pay for it. And I think the way you pay for it is taxes, whether it's on corporate or others, but just doing it in a smarter way that actually gives you uh, the kind of results you want. Because everybody wants their own piece from government. They want their PPP check. They want their small business investment. They want everything. And at the end of the day, we have to figure out a way to pay for it. And this notion that somehow we can zero health care or raid the Social Security Trust Fund is not really the right way to, the right way to do it. And it does include raising the retirement age because people are living longer. At the time we had the retirement age, people were dying at 62. Um, really quick, uh, Chris uh, has a question for you, Dove, uh, or, or for Michael. Go ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah, so my, my question was after I saw the, you know, the information leak out yesterday and have heard things today, how much of this do you think, you know, Michael, you mentioned messaging, how much of this is the White House acknowledging that this budget is never going to pass anyway, and that they're headed for a, a year long CR. So why not just take the political wins that they can take by, you know, having the balance that they want it and, and recognize that, um, that they're never going to really have to deal with it anyway. And that either a, they'll shake the etch a sketch sometime this summer with Congress and create a completely different document or B we'll just end up with a CR that this is all messaging and, and they know this will never pass. I don't think that the administration has the mindset that we're heading for a year-long CR. I think that's a mindset shared more by Republicans than it is by Democrats. So I think what the president's doing here is he's these are things that he's going to be able to campaign on in 24, that he's still hoping that we do raise the debt ceiling and the Republicans have to blink. We do get a budget passed over the next two years, but he can go back to the American people and say, I wanted to help save Medicare by raising uh, you know, taxes on people making 400,000 a year. I wanted paid family medical leave. I wanted free education. You know, These are things that um, he's gonna use to mobilize the base to get them out to vote, not just for the top of the ticket, but for the you know, Senate and House candidates as well. So I don't think for a minute that the Democrats and the administration have the defeatist attitude that we're headed for a year long CR because they know it's not in the best interest of the country. Uh, we're, we're unfortunately gonna, start, go, go ahead, Pat, uh, go ahead, Doug, but very quickly. Yep. Yeah, very quickly, Ed. That question is, isn't even inside the, the Beltway. It's inside Pennsylvania Avenue. And my concern is, whatever the calculation is, how are she and Putin going to look at what we're doing? And how are our allies look at what we look at what we're doing? That's the problem. Um, it, it is it is really worrying the sort of acrimony in this process 
and how that number kept bumping up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, and it, it's much better to have a smoother process in this, especially get that win where you can get it. And members are in a bipartisan appetite to do more for you, meet them halfway, get there. Because, you know, even though folks look at it and say, well, it was only $8 billion, for example, there's a lot you can do with $8 billion when you need more attack submarines, more capability. Uh, you know, there's an Air Force in transformation, an Army in transformation, a Marine Corps in, in, in uh, transformation. Chris, I'll come to you uh, in, in just a moment. I have to get Patrick in here. Patrick, uh, you know, you obviously watched the Pacific Dove uh, kind of really nailed it, right? I mean, um, if you asked uh, Lung Aquilino or any of his component commanders uh, out in the Pacific, they, they need more resources, uh, more infrastructure investment, more weapons. Uh, I do believe the weapons part of it is going to be well represented, but maybe not as well represented as we would like for things like JASM ER and LRASM. And, uh, you know, and, and that's the uh, one is the air launch standoff munition and uh, against ground targets is JASM ER. Uh, the extended range version of it. And obviously LRASM is the long range anti-ship missile, which which has been a, a requirement. From your perspective, what what is this budget signal to those sitting in Beijing who are about to get a 7% budget increase, which is likely more given the weakness of the Yuan anyway? Well, it tells Beijing that the United States uh, talks about the China threat, but uh, it doesn't quite deliver uh, the same budget that you would be uh, thinking it deserves if China... If you believe the argument, which is true, that China is engaged in the world's biggest military buildup in history, um, then the question is, are we seriously putting resources behind it? And so in our defense industrial base incapacity, in our, you know, if we're going to have an inventory war, potentially, do we really have the munitions in stock? You know, do we have the infrastructure in the Pacific defense, uh, not just in Guam, but uh, dispersed ammunition depot and other infrastructure that we're going to need? Um, you know, all of those things are going to require some of those unfunded mandates that Indo-PACOM will be talking about to be funded and not at the expense of other defense programs. So there are shortfalls here. And yet, you know, given all the constraints you mentioned, Vago, in terms of, well, where's the revenue? Where, where are the taxes? What about the other priorities? You know, it's, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to uh, judge the budget overall, but, but in terms of how China sees it, they see this as a, a they're going to keep gaining on the United States. And so, therefore, the United States is putting a, really a bigger premium on our allies and partners to deliver more. Um, and that's uh, that's asking a lot to be sustained over time. Uh, exactly. Chris, you've got uh, one point to make before uh, we go to uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran and China uh, and very briefly on Israel. Go ahead, because this show, it's a very big show. So I apologize to our audience. We're covering a lot of great uh, ground. And so we're going to go a little bit longer than we normally go. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Vago, we talked a little bit about this on Monday, but I mean, I could live uh, as somebody that's worried about the China threat. I, I could live with the top line where it is if the investments were in the places that we needed them to be. And I think that that's, I mean, you know, Dove mentioned it. Um, and I think Patrick, you know, hints at it. Um, if we were doing something to increase the time in which we could build up our munitions, if we were pushing industry harder, I mean, the administration's talking point is, is that this budget does a lot for the industrial base. I, I'm just not sure that even, you know, hey, I, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say hard decisions need to be made between defense and non-defense, but it just doesn't feel like the money is going to the types of things that will build short-term and medium-term capabilities 
voting capacity, it still has very much a divest to invest feeling to it. And, and that's troublesome. Uh, I would uh, completely agree with you uh, on that. And and this is why for, you know, I mean, I, I've argued that we, we do need kind of a CHIPS Act approach uh, to uh, industrialization. Um, and I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to throw the breweries out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard or anywhere else. But I mean, you know, ultimately, there are graving docks, each one of which would cost a billion dollars that that are now surrounded by uh, restaurants and stuff. And, and I think that that's great, unless you really need that graving dock uh, or that facility. Uh, and then just to, to start training programs for the kind of talent and people you're going to need, uh, which is the limiting factor. We can't get to that submarine production because we don't have the workforce. Uh, and uh, indeed, these facilities also were really, really, really good for big cities, whether they were San Francisco or New York or Philadelphia, because they had a lot of good trade jobs uh, for folks and they didn't need cars and there was no parking and traffic issues. They took the subway to get to work. They walked to work to the Brooklyn Navy Yard um, and, and had you know rewarding careers and raised families on them uh, in a middle class way that didn't necessarily you know, mean years of uh, a cyber and, and um uh, you know, university education, but nonetheless, important education. Anyway, getting off my soapbox. Uh, Dove, uh, start us off about what this uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, China deal uh, ultimately means. I mean, obviously, uh, the relationship between the United States and, and its Gulf uh, allies and partners uh, fraught um, the, you know, n- nuclear deal, Yemen, I mean, a whole bunch of things are playing along in in the background of this. But what does this mean? And Patrick, what do you think it means? And then, Dove, go back to you and give us kind of a quick update in Israel, because the situation uh, between the Netanyahu government and the Palestinian Authority and the new, um, you know, remarkably quickly metastasized uh, 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 radical Palestinian group uh, you know, will will threaten. Will I mean, is is very destabilizing, but also threaten foundationally uh, the Palestinian Authority, on which sort of the the uh, Entente Cordiale, let's put it that way, between uh, uh, between Jerusalem uh, and the Palestinians uh, has has been founded. Yeah, the, actually, the, the, those two items are related. Uh, this deal between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran to exchange ambassadors first time since 2016 uh, was done in China. And it was done at the very same time that uh, Brett, Mc- Brett McGurk, who's the National Security Council uh, leader on the Middle East, and Amos Hochstein, who uh, is officially an energy envoy, but is kind of a man of all seasons for uh, President Biden, has been working with the Saudi ambassador, uh, Rima bin Bandar, to uh, get this kind of an expansion of the Abraham Accords. Uh, But the Saudis are saying, well, we'll do it and and we'll normalize with Israel. However, you've got to help us with our nuclear, uh, civilian nuclear program. You've got to make it easier for us uh, to uh, acquire uh, your weaponry. And you've got to give us this much stronger security guarantee. Now, those are demands that uh, I don't know will pass, pass muster with Bob Menendez on uh, Senator Menendez on the Hill and many others as well. Uh, and uh, it's not clear whether the Saudis are simply saying, OK, um, we're trying, but the administration just doesn't want to work with us. They've been inviting Jewish American groups 
uh, over and over again to sort of uh, sort of uh, paper the way for some kind of deal. Maybe they think they can get pressure on the administration. Uh, but the fact that they've cut this deal with the Iranians in China uh, tells you that they are hedging their bets big time, that they don't necessarily believe they're going to get anything out of the United States. And the reason I say that this ties in with the Palestinian issue is because clearly if there's an intifada uh, and these younger radical groups and they're younger people who are just fed up with the Palestinian Authority, those folks might say, well, wait a minute, the last thing we want is an Israeli-Saudi deal because that really writes us off. And so that would actually uh, get them to plan an intifada. And that, of course, makes it impossible for a Saudi deal. So you've got a lot of volatility here. And right now, you know who the biggest winner is? Beijing. Uh, I would I would agree. And, and that group is Lion's Den, of course, uh, that, you know, went from a glimmer to, to something serious in the span of less than uh, six months. Patrick, uh, what is what does all of this mean as China has, uh, you know, I mean, in fairness, China has been making inroads in uh, all of those nations for you know more than a decade, going back to 2010, if not uh, even earlier uh, than that. Um, kind of give us a, a sense on sort of China's influence and what uh, this negotiated triumph really, in a sense, uh, means? Well, it's an ominous political victory for Beijing. Um, This is uh, supporting their vision of a multipolar world, uh, really a a Chinese-led counter-Western bloc. Um, And while that alignment may be much more brutal than it seems out of this agreement, nonetheless, this is a trend. And we're really seeing a trend in bipolarity because of Chinese assertiveness and aggression. On the one hand, uh, that's what's uh, driving U.S. allies and partners to be close together, including with, for instance, the ambassador from the Philippines saying in an interesting interview this past week, um, look, we have to make a choice. At the end of the day, do you want to be part of an autocratic uh, system or do you want to be part of a democratic system? Um, usually, Southeast Asian countries don't like to say they have to make a choice. So um, if our allies and partners are making choices, it turns out that those who are frustrated with the United States are also making choices. And here we see uh, a, a terrible case of Saudi Arabia getting in bed, uh, you know, Sunni, Saudi Arabia, Shia, Iran, with China's backing, uh, reaching an accord um, that clearly puts leverage uh, uh, against us and, uh, you know, not only allows them to hedge, but now we really have to rethink our own policies to make sure how do we prevent that alignment from becoming an alliance, an anti-Western alliance. And we have some hard choices and trade-offs to make ahead, as, as Dev has suggested. Uh, and and that is an issue I think we're going to take a bite out of uh, next week, unfortunately, because we're out of time. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, hope you all have uh, a terrific weekend, a terrific week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. We're going to take uh, a deeper look at that very question, uh, because these um, forces uh, have been at work for some time. The Chinese have been working it. The Russians have been working it. And then the Ukraine war then becomes the trigger uh, of, of forcing people to make those choices in a way maybe that they can't. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much.